Good morning. Please begin turning in your Bibles to John chapter 3. This morning we'll be hearing from verses 25 through 30. You can find those on page 888 in the Pew Bible. John 3, 25 through 30, page 888. We are wired for greatness. Sounds like a Joel Osteen quote, doesn't it? But what I mean is that since we are created in the image of God, in the likeness of the infinitely great one, and since Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity into our hearts, we, we look and we long for greatness. We love to witness it. We are wired for it. It's why we are so fascinated by kings and queens, uh, superheroes. Our culture is obsessed right now with superheroes, uh, great artists, musicians, athletes. We love watching greatness. I've said before how much Steph Curry bothers me. Sorry, Jeremy. It's because he professes faith in Christ but demonstrates the opposite in his language and his arrogance. But I love to watch Steph Curry play basketball. It's art. It's, it's beautiful. Curry has been on a historic tear the last couple of weeks. Um, hitting a three is hard. Uh, hitting ten threes in one game almost never happens. The second best shooter, second place, has accomplished this feat. Ten threes in one game five times in his whole career. Right? Five times in an entire career the second best shooter has done it. Which is an insanely impressive feat. Curry has done it six times this year, four of them in the last two weeks. He is so above and beyond any other shooter who has ever played. He's hit 46 threes in five games. No one has ever done that. He cannot be stopped. He can shoot from anywhere. He should shoot from anywhere. He's the greatest shooter ever. And it's just fun to watch. It just truly is athletic greatness. We love and we long for greatness. Most of us aren't that great. So we love to watch and witness it. I love to read biographies of great individuals to learn something of their success. What made them tick? What did they do? What was the secret to their greatness? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John, according to Jesus, the God-man, the only perfect man to ever live, the truly great one, Jesus says beside himself, John was the greatest man to ever live. Maybe it would be worth sorting out the secret of John's greatness. After today, we are leaving the Baptist behind. Before we do, well, let's see what made John great in God's eyes. I used this over a year ago in the heart of the pandemic. At the beginning of the lockdown, you, were, you would have been home watching. Let's see if anyone remembers. Well, it's, it's in your outline, so it's cheating. But in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he pins this line. He says, nothing is more profitable than the knowledge of this doctrine. That's such a big claim. Nothing is more profitable than the knowledge of this doctrine. And he goes on, without certainty about this, life would be unbearable. So nothing more profitable, a life unbearable without certainly knowing this. Um, it's there in your outline, right? It's not a secret, so I can't ruin the, there's, there's no suspense anymore. What's providence? Calvin argues 
that there's nothing more profitable than the knowledge of the doctrine of God's providence. And he goes on and says, Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. So these are really big claims. And so what we're going to see this morning is that this is actually the secret of John's greatness. And thus, one of the great secrets of the Christian life. You need to know this. You must know this. You must learn to live in light of the perfect providence of God. So that's going to kind of be our one big main point. The secret of John's greatness is his knowledge of and his trust in the providence of God. Yeah, but that won't be the whole thing. We're going to then see that two things follow that. Two things will be the result of that knowledge and trust. This is, just, this is no just grin and bear it. No, just kind of you know, suck it up and get over it. No, I want us to see what this knowledge and trust does in us and for us. And quite simply, it, it produces humility and joy. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see providence, and we're going to see providence produces humility and joy. So here's the secret of John's greatness. Trust in the providence of the Lord produces great humility in us, produces great joy in the Lord. All right, so point number one, we'll spend most of our time seeing that greatness knows and trusts the providence of the Lord. But then we'll kind of apply that a little bit more to us. We'll see point number two, that greatness is humble, and John is the perfect illustration of that. But then at the same time, I think we misunderstand humility. We're going to see that greatness rejoices in the Lord. Your first question opening this morning was, are you glad? We're going to see that John is greatly glad, and he is glad in the Lord. So that'll be our final point. Uh, let's read our text. Um, let's pick it up back in verse 22 again. Let's read that because remember that kind of sets the stage for what we're going to focus on. So I'll read all of verse 22 to verse 30 of John chapter 3. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you would, let's uh, go together first and begin this time uh, with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, may we all be able to say with John uh, that you must increase, but we must decrease. Father, I pray that right now I would be able to honestly say uh, that you must increase, but I must decrease. Father, this sermon is not about me. This sermon is not about how um, good of a sermon I can compose. It's not about how compelling I can be or creative or crafty I can be. Father, make this sermon about you and about your glory. Father, make your words the the center and the focus. Father, use your spirit to arrest our attention to Jesus. Use this sermon to arrest our hearts uh, to the glory 
of Jesus Christ, uh, to your bigness and your sovereignty as, as God. Pray that you would humble us. Father, we pray that you would delight us with who you are and with who we are in Christ. Father, I cannot accomplish these things. None of us can accomplish these things in and for ourselves. We, we need your help. You have promised that your word does not return void. So we ask that your will would be accomplished uh, through your word in this time. Father, show us Christ. Um, help us to love him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so point number one, greatness knows and trusts the providence of the Lord. Last week, we stepped back and did something a bit different. We took a sermon to more clearly define our corporate identity. Who are we? Woodside. And it's, it's kind to be clear. Our clarity is charity. It's good to be upfront and unapologetic about what we believe. So we talked about what it means to be Reformed Baptists. Remember the setting of our text, verses 22 through 24, is baptism. In verse 30, we just read John the Baptist say, He must increase, but I must decrease. Which is, as we'll see, change for the better, or it's reform. Right? So we could argue that John the Baptist really was the first reformed Baptist. Right? So we're just trying to follow in John's footsteps. It was a joke. No one got that that was a joke. It was a poor attempt at a joke. But the text before us actually goes really well with what we tried to do last week. We, we focused on what we mean when we say that we are Reformed. Right? We mean that we are rooting our theology back in the Reformation of the 16th century, which was an attempt to root their theology all the way back into the Scriptures. The Scriptures alone. And so we ran through the five solas, the five alones, which summarize the theology of the Reformation. According to Scripture alone, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it's that last one that you could argue that best summarizes what we mean by Reformed. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Johann Sebastian Bach, another example of human greatness, a musical Master, I worked on point one of this sermon with Bach playing in the background just to feel cultured and, and cool. I read one description of Bach that called him music's most sublime creative genius. Right? That's, that's greatness. But the point, maybe, the secret to Bach's greatness? Well, go look up and find one of his compositions and you'll see that at the bottom of every one of them, you'll find the letters S-D-G. Right? Soli Deo Gloria. Right, so he, he penned that on every one of his compositions. Right, you can sum up the Reformed faith with the truth that God, as God alone, deserves all the glory for all things, particularly when we are talking about salvation. God is God, and we are not. God is great, and we are not. God saves, and we do not. God is creator, redeemer, life, and so he alone gets all the glory. And our life alone is found in him. And John the Baptist gets that. John the Baptist's greatness is rooted in his recognition of the absolute greatness and glory of God. Look at the text. We saw in verses 22 through 24 that this is the setting that sets the stage for the conversation that is to follow. This conversation that is going to reveal to us the secret of John's greatness comes within this context. Verse 22, Jesus and his disciples have now left Jerusalem. They've now gone out into the countryside and they are baptizing. Why is that mentioned? 
Why is that significant? Well, because of verse 23. John, too, was baptizing. He is John the Baptist. After all, it's kind of what he does. And in verse 23, we see that people are still coming to him to be baptized. And so that sets the stage for potential conflict. As we're going to see, there, there is no conflict, but it seems that some want there to be conflict. Jesus is baptizing, but wait a second, that's John's thing. John is baptizing. Are these competing baptisms? Is there conflict here? Verse 25. In that context, a discussion arises. We don't know very much about this discussion. It's between the disciples of John, and the text just tells us, and a Jew. We don't know anything else about this individual, and little else about the specifics of this discussion. All we're told is that it has something to do with purification. We saw this same word back in chapter 2, verse 6. Remember there was the water in the jars for purification that Jesus then turned into wine. So this discussion has something to do with the various Jewish ritual and ceremonial washings, probably then in relation to John's baptism. We sometimes forget the simple and obvious truth conveyed by the sign of baptism. Water washes. Water cleanses. So baptism must be some sort of sign related to washing and cleansing. The Jews at the time already had various washing and cleansing rituals. Well, how does John's baptism relate to these things? Maybe that's what they were discussing. Either way, the focus of the text is not on that discussion in verse 26, but how that discussion in some way, no, that discussion in verse 25, how that leads to verse 26 and this other discussion about the relationship then between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Verse 26, look at it. And they came to John, his disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So here's the potential conflict. And it seems that John's disciples see the situation as conflict. It seems that they are concerned, maybe even upset. Notice the impersonal way that they refer to Jesus. Not by name, but he who was with you. Notice how they exaggerate a bit. All are going to him. Well, we just read in verse 23 that people are still coming to John, right? So that's not completely true. It seems that they're a little upset. There's this period. This is, there's this nice little note that it's like, oh, this is all before John was in prison. That sounds nice. Oh, but that means he's about to be in prison, right? So that's about to come. This is happening before that. And there was some sort of brief period where both John and Jesus are successfully ministering and baptizing. And John's disciples are concerned that the attention and the focus seems to be shifting away from John to Jesus. They seem to be concerned that Jesus is increasing and John is decreasing. You get that. I get that. I'm competitive by nature. I generally just don't play things that I know that I'm probably going to lose. I just won't do it. Uh, Anthony Anthony and I are planning on running a half marathon in the fall. I started cranking up my running this week and I actually said these words to Melissa. I was like, I'm going to run this thing with Anthony. I can't lose. to him, right? So I've got to get in gear. I've got to get in shape. It's a, it's a pride thing. Right? So I want to be great. I want to be seen as great. Well, therefore, I'm going to avoid things that clearly reveal that I'm not that great. Right? I have the same problem that John's disciples have. 
Sin is by nature, remember, an inward turn toward self. Right? Just sin is selfishness. Me. John was experiencing success, greatness. Everyone was coming to him. His disciples were attached to him. So they were great by association. Everyone was coming to them. And we all want greatness. And we think that it's found within. We think that it's found by doing and drawing attention to ourselves. We think it's found by demonstrating our own personal greatness in whatever kind of set of accomplishments we have determined are most valuable. John's disciples are concerned about the decreasing greatness of John. But not John. Look at John's response. Here is the secret to true greatness. John gets it. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Stop there. Just sit in that verse. Meditate on that verse. If you can get one thing out of this today, get this verse. We talked about Calvinism last week. What is Calvinism? People get all concerned and confused about Calvinism. Verse 27 is Calvinism. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. And notice how comprehensive the statement is. A person cannot receive even one thing. And it's even more emphatic in the Greek. Again, I am far from an expert. I couldn't quite figure out the Greek of this verse. But there's some sort of triple negative going on in the Greek. It literally says something like, Nothing is a man able to receive, not one thing that is not given him from heaven. So just emphasizing again and again, nothing. In other words, everything is ultimately given from heaven. Everything is given uh, from God. And this is where we could talk about the sovereignty of God. We've done that recently. A sovereign is a king. God is the king. He is the absolute sovereign. And sovereignty is about God's absolute right and power to do all that he wants and wills. This is just what it means for God to be God. He created everything. It is therefore his, therefore he also has the power and the right to do with it what he wants and wills. And he does. Okay, we could spend hours and hours defending this by just walking through from the very beginning of Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end, the countless passages of scripture that demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty. We don't have time to do that, obviously. One of my favorites I've read for you before is Isaiah 46, 9-11. through You should just write these verses down and memorize them. This is who God is. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. See, there's nothing like, there's no one like him. How is that played out? He declares the end from the beginning. He decrees all of it. He is God. You are not. He is not like us. He is the sovereign king whose will will be done. You cannot even receive one thing unless it is given to you from heaven. Unless God has declared and decreed that it can be given to you. Nothing happens outside of God's will. Everything happens under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Everything that happens, happens because he has decreed it to happen. 
Chapter 3 of the 1689, which we mentioned last week, God's decree. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. That's a very important phrase and thing to understand. God declares, God decrees everything that comes to pass. That's what we mean when we talk about his absolute sovereignty. It all happens because he planned it to happen. There is no happenstance. There is only God's decree. And this is just what scripture says. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He decreed it. His decree is his eternal plan based on his perfect will by which he foreordains everything that happens. That's his sovereignty, his, his authority, his decree. But in our point was almost the sovereignty of God. I, I changed it at the end. We're not talking about the sovereignty of God. This is a function of the sovereignty of God. We're focusing on the providence of God. Right? The question is, well, how does God execute his plan? How does he carry out his sovereignty? He creates all things, but he doesn't just sit back and stop there. After creation, he continues to work. His active work and his involvement in all things. And that's what we mean when we talk about God's providence. And that's what Calvin, the greatest theologian who ever lived, says is the most profitable doctrine for you to know. The providence of God. Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the 1689. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom. Here's what providence means. Upholds, directs, arranges, and governs. All creatures and things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. So God's providence is his upholding and sustaining of all things. And then it is his specific directing and governing of all things. Biblically, there is no such thing as chance or luck or fate. There is God and he is sovereign. And he decides and decrees everything that is to happen. And then he perfectly carries out those decrees through his providence. So his sovereignty kind of works itself out in his providence. He's not just old man up in the sky sitting back kind of watching, hoping we figure things out. No, he is actively working and ordaining and executing his perfect plan. So that means circumstances, all circumstances ultimately come from God. Every single one of them. A person cannot receive even one thing unless given by God. And here's why this is the secret to greatness. Here's why this is the most important doctrine for you to get, in part. It's in part because you experience hard and difficult circumstances. You experience lots of hard and difficult circumstances. Just think back to yesterday. What was the thing that happened that just most frustrated you yesterday? I was writing about the providence of God, and my two-year-old threw up in the middle of it, and my wife wasn't there. That was frustrating. Um, I texted her, help, <laughs> come back. Um, but was I, what was I going to do? Was I going to be upset? Was I going to be frustrated? While I'm writing about the fact that God has specifically ordained this thing to happen while I'm writing about this thing that's about to happen. All right, so you experience hard and difficult circumstances. You generally respond to those probably in anger, frustration, complaint. God is sovereign. You experience hard and difficult circumstances. Well, the question we should have been asking is, is, is why? And the question we should be asking is, what are you going to do? And how are you going to respond to those hard and difficult circumstances? Listen, John's ministry is decreasing. His greatness in the eyes of the world is decreasing. You have experienced some sort of loss, some sort of decrease. You have been stricken with sickness. Uh, there are difficulties at work, or there is no work. Maybe there's loss 
of work. There are relationship difficulties or there is loss of relationship. You either just have, you currently are, or you soon will face hard and difficult circumstances. Guess what? God is sovereign. Guess what? God's perfect providence means that he has decreed those very specific and difficult circumstances just for you. They, even they, are given by God. Wait a second, you're probably thinking. Was that true, first of all? And if it's true, is that good news? How is this good news? Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, Calvin says nothing more profitable than to know providence. So one more definition can't hurt. The Heidelberg defines God's providence like this. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is just what all of our, those who have gone before us, our brothers and sisters, have, everyone has understood and believed and affirmed. But again, how's that comforting? I just said that drought and lean and sickness and poverty comes from God. Well, the Heidelberg anticipates your question. It goes on to the next question. Well, how does this knowledge of God's providence help us? Here you go. We can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as even move. You see what this is saying. Here's why you need to understand and trust and rest and rejoice and rehearse in the sovereignty and providence of God. All creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they cannot even move. And by the way, we all grew up singing this as children. We just don't really believe it, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. That's actually a very profound and important truth. We just struggle to believe it. And that is such good and comforting news for you and me because the scripture reveals just as clearly that not only is God perfectly sovereign, but that he is also perfectly good. Catch how they talks about God in the Heidelberg there. If you had it before, you can see it. Not only is God Lord, but he's also Father. This is what we talked about Thursday night. He is our Father, and that changes everything. That's why the Heidelberg emphasizes that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Listen, do you know what good fathers do? Well, good fathers do everything. They, they lead, they, they love, they care, they protect, they provide. They seek the good of the loved. Paul specifically tells me that my job is to die for the good of my wife. That's what it means to be a father and a husband. That's what it means to be a man. To die, to lay down your life, to seek the good of the other, the love, the wife, and the children. Again, all of us earthly fathers do this imperfectly, but our heavenly father does this absolutely perfectly. And we've already seen this just in this chapter. We looked a few weeks ago from John 3, 16, how important the word give is in the gospel of John. Well, we have that same word in verse 27. Everything is given by God. 
In verse 16, we saw that it mean, what it means for God to give. or It means for God to sow love. It means that he loves in this way. How did he love? He gave. He gave his only son. Why? To die. Why? So that we could live. You see, God is love. And God loves in this way. Love here is not first affection, but action. Love seeks the good of the loved. What is the ultimate good? Life. Not perishing. God, who is life, is the ultimate good. God is love. So, for God to love, to seek our good, is for him to do whatever is required to accomplish our restoration to him and our knowledge of him and our enjoyment of him. And what is it that he promises to us, to all who are his, that he is doing in all of those things? Remember, all right, so he specifically ordains and sends you every single thing that comes into your life. But guess what? He also specifically tells you what he is doing in every single one of those things that he specifically ordains in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you see the beautiful combination there of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God? It's because he is absolutely sovereign that he can guarantee that he can and will bring about ultimate good for you. You remove the sovereignty of God and his meticulous providence, you have no hope and no guarantee that God can execute and carry out this promise. Um, It's good that he does this. And so then he promises that he is doing that for you, seeking your ultimate good in all of the things that he decrees and ordains for your life. Even your two-year-old vomiting in the middle of your sermon work. All of it. And of course, we get that God uses good things for our good. That's not even, we don't even need to state that. So when the text emphasizes all things, it must also mean bad things. It must mean those hard and difficult circumstances. Still specifically from God. Still for your good. But again, how can this be? Sometimes the bad things are so bad. Sometimes the hard things are so hard. And I think, in large part, our problem is that we just don't quite understand how God cares. And we don't quite agree with his assessment of what our ultimate good is. See, I know, I, I, I know I'm, by the grace of God, I'm fairly aware of my idols. So I want God's care to be demonstrated to me in comfort and ease. And in giving me what it is that I think that I most want and need. You're probably not very different from me. Right? We think God's care is demonstrated in comfort and ease and providing us things. But, church, God's care is so much bigger and better than that. What if the hard and the difficult circumstances that tempt you to question God's goodness are actually the very expression of God's goodness? What if the things that tempt you to doubt that God cares are the very evidence of his care. You see, trouble is often God's tool. He knows what we need. Now, remember, your heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else, mine too, right? So he probably knows better than us, right? He knows what we need. And he knows that he is our greatest good. He knows that our hearts are still often so far from him. He knows that the best thing possible is that we love him and become more like him. And so because he loves us and has promised to bring about our good, he will use hard and difficult circumstances to expose our hearts 
and the sin that remains, to expose our need, to knock out our idols, and to draw and conform us to himself, which is the only and ultimate good. Church, we have to, we've got to learn that, and we've got to learn to believe that, because this is, this is the secret. This is what you are quick to forget in your anger and in your frustration over your hard circumstances. And again, I, I'm speaking to myself here. Shortly after his claim that there is no doctrine more important than the providence of God, Calvin goes on to make another really big, important claim. He says this. this is, I love how he writes sometimes. He says, the principal purpose of biblical history. That's, that's big. Principal, main purpose. Why are we given so much narrative? Right? When you read your Old Testament that is over two-thirds of your Bible, why all these stories? So much history of God's people uh, and his dealings with them. Calvin says, the principal purpose of biblical history is to teach that the Lord watches over the ways of the saints with such great diligence that they cannot even stumble over a stone um, without his care, basically. In other words, what Calvin is saying is there is that God's purposeful providence reveals a very special, meticulous care towards us, his children. God gives us all that history and those examples of his faithfulness and care to remind us and to comfort us that he is sovereign over all of us, all of it, and that he is good and kind. That he has taken care of the big thing in Christ. And if he has done that, then we can trust him to take care of all the little things as well. This is the secret of John's Greatness. This is the most important doctrine for you to know and trust the particular, purposeful, propitious, pleasing, precious providence of God. 1 Corinthians 4 7. What do you have that you did not receive? <laughs> Nothing is the answer. Nothing. John knows that everything comes from God's fatherly hand and that all God's giving to his children is for their ultimate. Good. Do you, do you actually believe that? Does your reaction to difficult circumstances, your, your anger, or your complaint, or your impatience, does it demonstrate an actual belief and trust in God's providence? And again, not just general vague providence, but his, his kind and caring and good-seeking providence. He has told you that's what he is doing in everything that he brings into your life. Right? Do you know and trust in the providence of God. Well, if you do, what will be the result of this knowledge? What will naturally flow from trusting in the gracious providence of God? Humility. Point number two. Greatness is humble. Let's skip first to verse 30. And we'll come back. John's disciples are concerned and upset. John is not. John trusts in the providence of God. And because he trusts in the providence of God, John can speak what Leon Morris calls some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of mortal man. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's humility. And let's be honest, uh, humility is hard. Quickly, what is it? What, what is Humility. Well, the Greek word, the Greek word doesn't show up in our text. This isn't an expression of humility. But the Greek word that Paul uses is a compound of, of two words. The first meaning low and the second meaning mind. Right? So humility is just low-mindedness. 
It is to think of or judge ourselves with lowliness. Why lowliness? Well, it's because of who we are in comparison to who God is. And Calvin again writes, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look in to himself. You see, I can see in part how poor of a basketball shooter I am in comparison to Steph Curry. I can see his greatness and realize I'm not very good at this game. Uh, Infinitely more important. It's when I have, by the grace of God, been able to contemplate the greatness of God that I can then come down and see how short I fall of his glory. Humility is right thinking. It is a right view of oneself. It is the proper perspective of the creature in comparison to the creator. So humility depends upon reality. It's, It's looking at our pervasive sinfulness in light of God's perfect holiness. That will humble you. That will give you a right and proper view of yourself, which will then lead to a right and proper view of God and a right and proper view of others. At the end of his uh, famous chapter on pride and mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes that you'd never come away from meeting a humble person thinking that they're humble. Right? Humble people don't mope around telling everybody that they're a nobody. and they're just, you know, That's actually just a different form of pride. That's just a different form of self-obsession. He says that instead, you would come away from meeting a humble person thinking about how much they seem to be totally focused on and interested in you. Is that what people come away with when they meet us? We all have those people that we know. Maybe we are those people we don't know that just seem to only talk about themselves, right? And their accomplishments, right? Maybe that's me. I don't know. I hope it's not. It could be all of us. But meeting a humble person, you'll realize that, oh, they're so focused on me, right? They're, They're asking Questions. They're concerned. They're interested in me. Because the essence of humility, as Lewis famously puts it, is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Remember, sin is a turn in. Sin is to be curved in on oneself. Sin is by its very nature selfish. Well, salvation is the correction of that. Salvation is going to include the straightening out and restoring of our original design. Salvation is going to be a shift of focus, a shift of life, a shift of life, focus, purpose, goal, from self to Christ. And that, that's salvation. You know and you love yourself very well. John 17.3 says that life is found in knowing and loving God. So salvation is a transfer of love for self to love for Christ. It is thinking of yourself less because your thinking is now focused first on Christ. That's humility. It's, it's lowness in light of God's greatness. And what we're seeing here is that in God's eyes, that lowness is actually true greatness. This is Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. I think people frequently misunderstand that verse and what that means. Uh, the humility of a child is not that they are innocent. Right? Have you had children? Uh, the humility of a child is not that they lack pride. Uh, have you had children? Um, no. Again, children just like adults are naturally selfish. They are naturally prideful. They are sinners just like we are. How then is a child humble? It's because a child is helpless. 
A child cannot take care of itself. A child cannot provide for his own needs and so must have an adult meet all of his needs for him. That's humility. It's the right recognition that we are helpless, that we cannot even take care of, cannot save ourselves, and so we must have God meet all of our needs for us. And that's what makes sense of verses like James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, why, why is that? Why is God so opposed to the pride and the proud and the prideful? Well, it's because pride by nature, again, sets itself in opposition to God. Right? Pride is the belief that God is not needed. Ultimately, then, because we think, well, you know, I've got this. We're ultimately thinking, well, you know, we're basically God ourselves. Therefore, we do not need God. So pride, then, is the love of self and the rejection of God. Which is just, that's what sin is. That's the ultimate sin. The rejection of the one who made you. The one who made you for him. The one who designed you and blessed you and told you that you will find true life and joy only in him. Sin says, nope. We just little comprehend how wicked and wretched this is. We little comprehend how wicked it is to reject the perfectly good and glorious and kind God of love. We little understand how wicked and wretched our pride is and how pervasive our pride is. God is opposed to the proud because their pride is opposed to him. But to the humble, oh, it tells us he generously gives grace. He generously gives himself in Christ. And so humility is everything. Seeing yourself rightly in God's eyes is everything. Because you are not God. And that's reality. And it is very good to live in light of reality. But don't miss this either. It's also necessity. Look at it again. Look at verse 30 again. Don't miss the must of verse 30. Don't miss that this is must number 3 of John chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 7. You must be born again. Chapter 3 verse 14. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase. I think it summarized the whole of the Christian life with those three musts. The gracious, God-given gift of new birth gives us the heart and the eyes to see the glory of the crucified Christ, crucified for us, lifted up for us, which then gives us the desire and the light to see Him increase, to see Him magnified, and glorified because we can now see him as he is. We can now see him in all of his glory and all of his goodness, all of his bigness, all of his beauty. And so then we cry out with John, Oh, he must increase. In the Greek, there are alternate definitions for this same word are it is necessary, it is inevitable, it is right and proper. It's necessary, inevitable, right and proper that he increase. This is nothing other than the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Hallowed be your name. This is the second petition. Your kingdom come. The third petition. Your will be done. He's God. I am not. He is big. And it's in his bigness that I see my smallness. It's in his highness that I see my lowness. Church, that's good. I am so much more prideful than you think. And you are so much more prideful than you think. And so this, this knowledge is grace. Again, because we were made for him. 
And the more I see and understand him, the more I see that my entire good is wrapped up in him. Psalm 16, I have no good apart from you. And so then I I want him to increase. I want increasingly the emphasis and focus of my life to shift from self to Christ. Because that's humility. This is what a knowledge of God and his providence produces. Remember Lewis's explanation. It's not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Well, what then happens when I am thinking of myself less? Thinking of him more, which is the best possible thing for me. A.W. Pink writes this. He says, humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Right? So you can't, you, you, your homework is not go home and be humble. Right? You, you can't do that. Right? He says, rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then I shall be changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Can you see what Pink is saying there? He says, by the grace of God, as focus is shifted away from self, it has to go somewhere, your mind has to be filled with something, as it shifts away from self to the Savior, it is this that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this beholding of his glory, that is actually the means through which God transforms us into that same image. His image, which is unbelievable, from one degree of glory to another. And so you see how this actually ultimately results in my good? It is the sight of Christ, and it is the mind fixed on Christ, and the life lived entirely in, with, and for Christ, that actually brings me the most good. Christ-likeness, which means communion with God himself. Remember, God is perfectly righteous, so you have to be righteous to be with him. Well, what God is doing is giving you Christ's righteousness and making you righteous so that you can be with him forever. And you know what that means? Joy. Point number three. Greatness rejoices in the Lord. Again, this is your basic idea of the sermon. Knowledge and trust in providence results in humility, results in joy. Go back to the text briefly. Look at verses 28 and 29. In verse 28, John reiterates what he has been saying all along. I am not the Christ. I am not the one. I am not the focus. Therefore, I'm not upset that all people are going to him because that's the very reason for which I exist, for him, to bear witness about him. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That's a beautiful metaphor. There's actually more going on there than I think we can probably appreciate 2,000 years later as Gentiles. Uh, The friend of the bridegroom, what we would call basically the best man, but again, much more significantly with a more important role. The basic point is that the best man's not the point of the wedding. I was trying to think of this. I, I did Andy's wedding and Andy and Jen's wedding. I have no idea who Andy's best man was. I was trying to think of that. Um, so hopefully that guy's not listening. He's not offended. But then that's not the point. I remember Andy and I remember Jen. Right? They were the point of the wedding. Right? It's the, bride, the, the friend is not the focus. He's not the center of the tension. The wedding is not about him. He has one very specific role to help 
and to serve the bridegroom. Therefore, his purpose and his joy is found in the joy of the bridegroom. Which means that the secret of greatness is to learn that your purpose and your joy is found in Jesus and not in you. Your joy is not found first in pursuing your joy. I said, we, I said, we all need to understand how little we believe that. You just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Or I don't live like it. Right? We believe that we find joy by pursuing what we believe will bring us joy. By pursuing ourselves and by pursuing what we want. No, your joy is not found first in pursuing your joy. Your purpose is not found first in pursuing your purpose. It's found only in pursuing Jesus. And this is just so countercultural and so counter-self and counter-sin. We all still somewhat believe and live as if joy is found in doing what we want, when we want, with whom we want, getting what we want, and increasing. When we are reminded again and again and again in Scripture, because we forget it again and again and again, that those things you are looking for and that you tend to look for within, those things that you are striving for and that you tend to strive to achieve, are actually only found without and are actually only received. Joy is found Only in Jesus, period. And that's why John can rejoice, even though he is decreasing. Remember again, by the way, this is the end of John. Do you know what's next for John? Death, prison, and his head getting cut off. That's what's next for John. And John's joy is complete, full. Because John has found and been found by the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. And it sounds so obvious. You think you know this. Joy is found only in Jesus. I know. But again, how much do our actions portray that we actually believe the exact opposite? God has specifically and kindly told you exactly where to find the one thing that you want and the one thing that you most need. We all want to be happy. Everything that we do is is based upon what we think is going to bring us happiness. We all want gladness. It's all in Jesus. Who is God himself come to die for us so that we could live. What could be more joyful than that? You deserved an eternity of suffering in hell because you rejected the best being. You rebelled against the creator king himself. And what did he do? He came after you. He came for you. The highest one got the lowest so that you could live. And that, brothers and sisters, is just, it's everything. Christ is everything. And you need to see how little you actually live in light of the truth that Christ is joy and that he is out for your joy. You say, yeah, yeah, I know. Joy is found in Jesus. But again, let's think about like, where do we find Jesus? We find him in the word. What does our actual engagement with God's word reveal about how much we actually believe this? Because God's told us specifically where you find the thing that you most need. It's found in Jesus who's found in the word. How are you engaging and utilizing that word? We struggle to live in light of this truth. Christ is joy. And he's working for our joy. And all that he says and commands is for your joy. His law is good. 
John 15, 11, Jesus actually says, these things I have spoken to you, right? My word, my law. He's just laid out the connection. We talked about this in Sunday school. He's just laid out the connection between love and obedience. These things go together, right? There is no love without obedience. There is no faith that doesn't demonstrate itself in works. Jesus talks about the connection between law and grace. And this isn't strange because God's law is good and God's law is for our good. So if we love him who loves us and is perfectly out for our good, well, then we're going to desire to obey him. We're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to struggle and fail, but that's going to be our increasing desire. And so Jesus there in John 15 says, I have spoken all this to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's amazing. Jesus says he is out for your joy. He's out for your full joy. And he doesn't just say like he wants you to find some of your own happiness. No, he says he wants his very joy to be in you. Just try and wrap your head around that. He's the perfect person. He is perfect in all of his attributes. That means his joy is unimaginably perfect. And he says that's the joy that he wants for you. How foolish are we to pursue anything else? God has held out to us life itself. His very self, fullness of joy, and it's found in him. So believe him. Be humbled in his presence. Trust in his perfect, purposeful, good-producing providence. And that's the secret of John's greatness. The greatest of men was the humblest of men because he trusted in the providence of God, and thus he was the happiest of men because he, bel- he knew that God's providence was ultimately for his good, and so he could rejoice. What's the most important doctrine for you to know is the providence of God. What is the result of the knowledge of this providence? Calvin, one more time. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. So thankfulness, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Freedom of worry, freedom of anxiety, and freedom of fear. Well, if you believe in the providence of God, you you have it. Joy comes in wholeheartedly submitting to and embracing God's sovereignty, including this purposeful providence, his specific plan for your life, which is always and absolutely for your good. I have extra time, so I'm going to close. I'm going to add this. I'm going to close with it. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but let me close with one of my favorite quotes uh, since we're doing well, because this, this quote just wrecks me. I've given it to you before in an email. I don't know if I've used it in a sermon before, but this is from Thomas Watson's great work, All Things for Good, which is Watson's exposition of Romans 8.28. Right? He brings about works all things for good for those who love him. This is what Watson writes about our impatience, anger, and complaining in light of God's promise and providence, right? Remember, we've just established that everything comes from God's hand. Every circumstance, every difficulty, every trial, that thing that you're so frustrated and angry about right now, specifically from God's hand. How are you responding and reacting to it? Listen to Thomas Watson. What? Discontented at that which shall do us good? All things work for good. There are no sins God's people are more subject to than unbelief and impatience. We are ready either to faint through unbelief or to fret through impatience. When men fly out against God by discontent and impatience, it is a sign that they do not believe this text. 
Discontent is an ungrateful sin. Oh, because we have more mercies than afflictions. And it is an irrational sin because afflictions work for good. That's the logic here. Shall we be discontented at that which works for our good? The Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it's to enrich us. These light afflictions work for us an eternal weight of glory. And shall we be discontented? That is so profound and convicting. Do you catch what Watson is saying? Hey, that thing that you're so upset about? God has promised to you that he has ordained it and that he's working it for your good, for your eternal glory and your joy. You then are upset and angry about that which the perfectly good God has clearly promised you is for your good. My brother is very kind and successful. He's offered us to stay at his beach house for free over a break for a little while. That's very nice. What if I, was, what if I called him back and like, I hate, I'm so mad at you. I can't believe you've done this thing to me. How dare you offer me this beach house for free to stay in? Like, what? I was trying to be kind. This is a good thing, and I'm angry about it. That's the exact same thing that we do when we're upset about God for anything. Because he's told us, it's all for your eternal glory and joy. You are upset about that which he has promised you for good. You are then upset and angry at God for good. Man, you need, I need, the secret of John's greatness. Trust in his providence. This is the most important doctrine for you to know. Can you imagine how differently we'd live if we actually believed this? Know and trust his providence. Be humbled. He loves you. That should just humble us to the core. And that should just delight us to the core. He has promised all things ultimately for our good. Um, That's what the God of the universe is doing for me in my littleness and in my sin. Church, we should find great delight and great joy in this big God who is with us and who loves us and who is for us. So study his providence. Get Thomas Watson's book. Um, Study and read it and trust in him and love him and rejoice in his kindness and his grace. Let's stop there and let me close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, please help us. We cannot create humility within ourselves. We cannot stir up joy within ourselves. Father, you have told us where those things are found and and how you work those things within us. And, And so we ask now that you would do that by your spirit, through your word. Father, show me my sin and my anger and my impatience. Show me how those things are directed ultimately against you. Show me how my sinful unbelief and discontent is directed at that which you have promised ultimately to bring about my good. Father, help me to trust you. Help me to love you. Father, oh, give us great joy in Jesus. Father, we know that it's found only in him. Forgive us for how quick we are, for how quick we'll be today to look for that joy somewhere else. Father, soften our hearts. Make us glad in Jesus. Father, help us to see things from your perspective and understand eternity, that we deserved unimaginable separation and suffering and pain. And you have given us unimaginable and eternal life and pleasure and joy in you. Father, help us to live this 
light and momentary life with all the hardships and the difficulties in light of the eternal weight of glory to come that has been guaranteed for us in Christ. Father, please help us. We thank you that you are so perfectly patient with us, uh, your people. Continue to work on our behalf. Continue to sanctify us and make us more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would do that even this day through your word by giving us um, better understanding and a deeper love uh, for him. Help us now, we ask and we pray. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.